I'm going to read from 2 Timothy, chapter number 3. And as I read this scripture, these phrases, will you repeat the phrases after me? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned. If you're where you can, would you bow with me? Father, we live in an age of confusion, an age in which we're surrounded by crises. And Father, so many times we don't know what to do, what to say, even how to live. But we're so thankful that you have given us the Bible, not as a book to meet our felt needs, but as a manual for life. You speak, Lord, as we seek to teach your book. Let me get out of the way. I have nothing to say so that thy word and thy word alone might be heard. For this is our prayer made in the only name that gets us through to thee, O Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We are in a cultural war. You might ask, what is culture? Culture is everything that's in you and in me and everything that's around you and around me. It is our environment. It is the air we breathe. It's the people we associate with. It's our family. It's a multiplicity of worldviews. This is the atmosphere. This is the environment in which we live. It is our culture. And we are in a cultural war right this moment worldwide, but especially in the United States of America. In 1970s, I read a book by Alvin Toffler entitled Future Shock. He was responding to the radical changes that took place in the 1960s, so therefore in the 70s, Toffler's thesis was that the culture is changing so rapidly that human beings can't keep up 
It was moving, he would say, at the speed of sound. If that were true in the 1970s, what's happening to our culture today? It's moving at the speed of light. Man, things are changing so rapidly. Who in the world can keep up? There's a word yesterday we used in our vocabulary, and now if you use that word, you're canceled. There was a lifestyle yesterday we thought was valid, and if you enter that lifestyle today, you are canceled. So we live in a rapidly moving culture. Now, some would say our culture is drifting. It's just drifting. No, our culture is not drifting, ladies and gentlemen. Our culture is being driven. It's being driven by what forces? Silicon Valley, Hollywood, Las Vegas, Wall Street, Washington. It is being driven by our educational world. It is being driven by our entertainment world. It's being driven by our corporate world. It's being driven by our digital world. These are many things that are driving us in our culture to move into a brand new culture. And what is the basic premise behind all of this? You know, you read a news article and that's fine, but that may not be the primary article. The truth of that article may be what's called a shadow article, a shadow reality. Behind that article, behind that event, there's a shadow event. What is happening in our culture? What is the ultimate goal of our culture? I think you see a hint of it, and it's present many, many places at the Democratic Convention. They pledge allegiance to the flag on two occasions. But on both occasions, with great intentionality, they said, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation, they, with great intentionality, left out under God. The basic thrust of the culture war we're in is simply to eliminate God from every aspect of life, keep God inside the stained glass and the steel, but by all means, don't let him get out. That is the shadow agenda, which really is the primary thesis of those who are humanists, and secularists and those who would take God out of the United States of America. If you don't see that, take the blinders off. This is the basic background, the shadow of the cultural war in which we're in. You say, well, the hope would be the church. But let's be honest. Most of those entities that have stained glass and steel and steeples and crosses, 
most of that which is called the church has basically already surrendered all the moral questions to the culture. Check out the Episcopalians, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, and a lot of Baptists, though they wouldn't tell you they surrendered, they surrendered by their silence. I don't want to offend anybody. I, I want to be popular. I want to draw people, not push people away, and therefore I'm going to get along and I'm going to go along. And how tragic it was this very week when the Pope, the head of the Catholic Church, said very clearly, we accept secular marriage for those of our constituency who are of the same sex. Let me tell you what that is. That is separating the sacred from the secular. And if anything we read in the Bible, you cannot do that. There's no sacred area and there's no secular area. That is the whole thrust of the kingdom of God. This is exactly what so many of the Catholic leaders have done for years. Governor Cuomo won the father of the present governor of New York. I remember very clearly when he said, I'm a Catholic, and I support my church on its stance for life. But, he says, my constituency is pro-choice, therefore, publicly, I am pro-choice. Privately, I believe in the sacredness of life, but publicly, I'm pro-choice. That is exactly and precisely what the Pope has done with marriage. Exactly what he's done. So we see that the church, by and large, has sold out to the culture. Now, if we're serious about this war, it's not going to be satisfied totally through elections. We are going to have to get in the battle those who are genuine followers of Jesus Christ. The cultural Christians, they've already run away. They'll not be coming back. When it was appropriate and approved to be a child of God and living by biblical principles. Boy, they came to interact and be a part of the church. Oh, that's good. That's fine. I want my children to have some morals. That's, that's fine. But I'll tell you, they're going to bail out in this war. They're going to be A-W-O-L, absent without leave. The cultural Christians, they'll not stand in this war. You just book it. So what are we to do if we're serious in the war that we have, what are we to do? What is our role? Remember what Winston Churchill said to the English-speaking world in the Second World War? They asked him what it's going to take to win. You remember what he said? Blood, sweat, and tears. There is no war of any statute that has ever been won without blood, sweat, and tears. So we're talking about how to win the cultural war. I'm going to talk about exactly how we are to posture ourselves as soldiers in this war. And then next week, I'm going to talk about how to vote for a president. And then the following week, after the election, I will talk about the resources we have, the secret resources we have in order to win this war. So stay with me. What do we do? 
I think we have to do individually and therefore collectively. We're going to have to, first of all, speak love. And then the second thing we have to do, we're going to have to teach truth. And the third thing, we're going to have to live pure. Speak love. The verse that everybody almost can quote. Everybody can quote, Jesus wept. But also, most of us can quote John 3.16. Let's see what it says briefly. For God so loved the culture, the world. God so loved the culture that he gave his only son that divinity visited the world, the incarnation, that whosoever, anybody, anywhere, any background, any understanding, whosoever believes in him, they'll not perish. They will live forever and forever and forever. That's what that teaches. And that is what this world needs first and foremost. We are going to have to speak love. God is love. We've got to speak that love. So how do we introduce people to him who helps you and me make sense out of life, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we do that? First of all, we have to understand that the leading symptom of our spiritual sickness is death. That's the first symptom that we're spiritually ill. It's death. Jesus came into the world to conquer death. And he's the only person who ever conquered death. Now, therefore, what's the cause of death? The cause of death is sin. What is sin? It's violating the principles of God that's built in all of creation and is taught in the book. Sin is the cause of death. Sin separates us. Sin is the great separator. Sin separates our soul from God. Let me remind you for the 523rd time of what your soul is. Your soul and my soul is everything that's not flesh. Everything that is not of this body about you and about me, that's your soul and that's my soul. It's everything that's not flesh. It's your heart, your emotions, your will, who you are, your personality. And that soul is made in the image of God as this body is. And that soul is made and will live forever. Sin separates your soul and my soul from God. Death separates your body and my body from our soul. You follow me? This body will not make it through eternity. Does that surprise anybody? We can exercise it, vitaminize it. We can do all kind of things, but this body is not made to live forever. Do you get that? Anybody want to debate that? Sin separates our soul from God, and death separates our soul from the body. So Jesus came into the world to deal with two problems that are very closely related. The problem of sin 
and the problem of death. How did he deal with sin? He lived a perfect life. And in that cosmic transaction, he took upon himself all of your sin and all of my sin and all of my shame and all of my garbage. He took that upon himself and he paid the price that has to be paid for sin in order for us to be reconciled to God. You see, when we go to pray, if there's darkness or sin in your life and my life, don't waste your time praying about anything or anybody or any desire or any words of superpiosity if there's sin operating in your life because God is light and love and sin is darkness and we have to first of all deal with our sin and that's what Christ did before God can deal with us, before God can save us and forgive us and use us and bless us. So this is what happened. Jesus took all that sin of, that you have and I have on the cross, and when he became sin, Jesus, who was perfect, became sin, what happened? The Father turned away from him. Divinity turned away from divinity. Can you think about that? Because Jesus took all of our stuff on him and the father turned away and Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you turned away? Why have you sold me out? Why have you forsaken me? What a big price. What a big price. But it's on that cross, the sin problem was taken care of. It was taken care of for you and for me. Also, what about the problem of death? We know the story. We know Easter. Jesus, dead three days, three nights. The Father resurrected him. And now that perfect soul that he had was united with a resurrection body, a body that is made for eternity and for heaven. And so now the sin problem that we have and the death problem that we have is taken care of by Jesus Christ. What a fabulous, fabulous word we are to relate, a word of love, a word of redemption, a word of new life. And we call it being born again. We call it the process of propitiation, if you want a theological word. It means that we have on our heaven suit and our earthly suit. It is a fabulous thing. The twin problems of sin and death were satisfied by Jesus Christ on the cross and with the resurrection, and that covers all of us. Now, now, this is speaking love. Now, how do we apprehend that? The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. What does it mean to believe? Exactly what I've said. Exactly what the Bible teaches. We believe, and what triggers that belief? That is our faith. When we're aware of our sin, we confess our sin, we repent, we turn away from our sin, and then faith, we receive him into our life. We unzip our heart and our life, and we put Jesus in, and he comes in with his spirit, and in your life and my life, there is a garden there in which we grow up to be men and women who walk with the Lord Jesus Christ in this broken culture. 
Man, that's a message. That's how we speak love. It's a fabulous thing, and that's the first thing we need to do in this broken world. We have to learn how to speak that language of the love of God for all humanity. That's the first step. What's the next thing we do? Not only to speak love, we have to teach truth. How do you teach truth? First of all, we'd better try to embody truth in our own life. Jesus says, I am the way. He says, I am truth. So we already are embodying him. How do we teach that truth? What's our problem? Why are we not teaching truth in our culture? It's because of sloth. Sloth. <laughs> Boy, that surprises me. I thought sloth was being lazy. Now, one thing you can say about us in America, there are not many people that are lazy. Boy, we are going, we are blowing, we are doing sloth. There are seven deadly classic sins, and one of them is sloth. And the classic definition of sloth is the loss of an appetite for God. You got that? So when you lose your appetite for God, we become slothful. And therefore, because that appetite is lost so many times in the way that we live in our fast-moving culture, we're slothful. And we're slothful with our own busyness. Boy, let's go, let's get up. Because we know there's that God-shaped vacuum in our heart. You can put anything in that God-shaped vacuum of this world, and it'll never satisfy. You can't satisfy that vacuum with anything else. So we put a little little thin shear over that God-shaped vacuum, and we don't get too close to it because we're busy, because we're filled up with recreation and fun, or whatever it is, we read, we study, we go, we watch, we move, we travel. See, we're trying to fill up this slothfulness in our heart because we're not living and we're not teaching truth. Pascal said, there are three kinds of people in the world. He said, there are those who seek and find. He said, they're reasonable and happy people. He said, those who seek and do not find, they are reasonable, but they're still unhappy. And he said, those who do not seek and do not find, that's a slothful group. They're not hot, they're not cold, they're just apathetic. He says, they're unreasonable and they're unhappy. But, Pascal says, the second group will become the first group one day because Jesus says, if you seek, you'll find. Now, it's interesting that a lot of people think they're seeking God, but they're not finding God. You know, the problem usually is we seek him with some fine print. We're trying to make a deal with God. How about that? I'm going, I've worked out this thing. I hear people say, oh, I've worked out my own deal with God. How foolish and stupid can you get? Dealing with the Almighty. Well, God, I listen. We seek when we open up when we're transparent, when we're truthful, when we can be seen through. That's what a true seeker does. And those who seek like that, they always find, and they're reasonable. They always get to be happy because we discover when we seek and when we find God, we discover all the time he'd been really seeking you and seeking me. 
seeking you and seeking me. We are to teach truth. But the problem is a definition of truth. What is truth? Let me remind you, and I remind you over and over again, what postmodernism is. Let me say it and write this down in your heart. You need to know it. Postmodernism is that whatever you see, whatever you read, whatever you experience, you could put your own interpretation to it. It doesn't matter what is really being written. It doesn't matter what really happened. You just interpret it any way you want to interpret it. That basically is postmodernism. It means that any means we use, regardless how shabby or dishonest, how much we lie or deceive, doesn't make any difference as long as we have that end, that goal in mind. Postmodernism eliminates objective truth. Now, you say, boy, that's so crazy. You think so? You think so? Read the bibliographies of all virtually the major universities in America, and you'll see postmodern authors there bleeding that into their students day after day after day. There is no objective truth. Now, let's see this in practical terms. Remember Harry Reid, who was a representative from the wonderful state of Nevada? <laughs> Almost said Las Vegas. It's a state in and of itself. <laughs> Remember Harry Reid? Remember when Romney was running for president? And Harry Reid stood on the floor of the House, and he said, I have it from good sources, inside sources, that Mitt Romney didn't pay his taxes. Oh, yeah. And, of course, Schumer, Pelosi, they said, well, somebody with the integrity of Harry Reid, if he says that, it must be true. And they said the same thing on the floor of the House of the Senate. Now, years went by, four or five years. Harry Reid left the House, retired. A reporter went to him and said, Mr. Reid, you said that you had absolute proof that Romney didn't pay his taxes. And we have looked at it, everybody has, and the truth is he did pay all of his taxes. What do you have to say to that? And Reed smiled and said, he didn't get elected, did he? When you speak in the House of the Senate, did you know you have protected speech? Somebody is from the Senate and look at any one of us and said, you're a liar, you're a cheater, man, you're a thief, you're, you're an adulterer, and I want you to know. And when they say that from the House of the Senate, they have protected speech. You have no recourse to respond in any single way to the slander that's been inflicted upon you because they have protected speech. Oh, it gets better and better. Nancy Pelosi recently, publicly, I heard her say this, not literally, but their own film. She said, I want to tell you how politics works. He says, she says, what we do, and she said, all of them do it. I don't know. She said, we leak something to the press, something that we can make up, conjure up about an issue, about an individual, and we leak it to the press. 
He said, the New York Times takes and puts in there, we have from reliable sources from the White House of the Senate of the State Department that this is true, and they report it. Well, goodness, if they report it, the Los Angeles Times reported, Chicago, some news reported, it's all over the Internet. And then Pelosi said, what we do then, he said, we go and say, look at what all the media has said about this, therefore it must be true. You'll leak something that is not true or unfounded. It's reported everywhere. Then they come back and say, I told you it was true. They've done their research. Ladies and gentlemen, truth is in big, big, big trouble in our culture. We, if we're going to be a part of the healing, we have to learn how to teach and live truth truth, especially we'd better learn how to do it in our families, in our families, our sons and our daughters. We'd better learn how to teach truth there. In a Seattle newspaper in the last couple of weeks, an English professor who teaches at Northwestern University, I think it's in Evanston, Illinois, wrote an op-ed article, and this professor said, I'm a humanist, I'm a secularist, basically he was saying I'm godless, but he says we see it all the time up here in the blue states. He said parents will take their children and they'll drive them in there into the blue states coming from the red states and said they'll unpack their children, get them in their dorms, and they'll hug and they'll cry and they'll get in their vehicle and they'll drive off. And then this is what he said, then those kids are mine. He said, then we've got them. In the article, four years. And what happens in that four years? a breakdown of any understanding of God, of conservatism, of morality, as they are invaded with all kind of wild, pluralistic ideologies. And the glands kick in, and so many times our children come back. After we paid $40,000, $50,000 a year for their education, they come back empty and godless. He said, then they're mine. We had better teach truth. Speak love, teach truth. The third thing we need to do, we have to live pure. Oh, that's a good one. Anybody here want to see God? Would you like to really see God, see him in the flesh, see him literally? The Bible tells us how we can do it. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, said Jesus, because those who have pure hearts, guess what? They're going to see God. Purity. Without alloy, without un un different kinds of motives and motivation. Purity, pure, pure. We're going to have to live a pure, pure life. And it is so tough in this secularized, 
sexified new word we live in. How do you do it? I have in my hands something called a life straw. Has anybody ever seen one of these before? Lift your hand. A life straw. Two or three people. Okay. More than that. I've never seen one. A life straw is an amazing thing. Every year, between five and six million people on this earth die because they have drunk water that was not pure, contaminated water, all kinds of, kind of, between five and six million die. You, two and a half to three million children die every year from drinking contaminated water. Now, if that's too big a figure for you to understand, let's say Metropolitan Houston is six million, and we're six million bucks. The people around the world, the size of Houston, die every year because they drink contaminated water. Does that help you see it? This little thing right here, you could put it in contaminated water, whatever it is, and you can suck through it, and this purifies that water until it's safe to drink. Isn't that an amazing little thing? Amazing little thing? Now, in the culture in which we live, that is so polluted, disease-filled. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you and I somehow could <coughs> purify our lives and drink water like Jesus offered to the woman at the well that's pure where you wouldn't have to be thirsty again? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could do that? How do we do that? I'll tell you how you do it. You wake up in the morning with the Lord Jesus Christ. You go to bed at night with the Lord Jesus Christ. The little chorus said, in the morning I see his face. In the evening he is for my trace. In the darkness, oh, his voice I know. I see Jesus everywhere I go. Blessed the pure in heart, for they shall see God that's the kind of life we need to live. Now, I got to this point in my preparation, and I said, you know, anybody who speaks love, hmm, teaches truth, and lives pure, man, that's the kind of person we want our sons and daughters to marry. That's the kind of person we want to Work for, that's the kind of person we'd like to work for. That's the kind of person we think would make a tremendous difference in our culture. We're going to seek out people. We want to be with people. We want to have friends with people. Who in the world could find anything wrong with somebody who genuinely, man, speaks love and teaches truth and lives a pure, clean, moral life? Boy, wouldn't that be something? Boy, that would really change everything. The whole culture would applaud us. Wrong, wrong. That kind of life is swimming counter stream of the culture in which we find ourselves because America is not just post-Christian. America now is anti-Christian. If you haven't picked that up, welcome back from Mars. You say, well, how do you know that? Did Jesus speak love? Hmm. Did Jesus 
teach truth? Did Jesus live pure? What in the world happened to him? Huh. You see, on that Passover experience, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel, and by the way, Israel by far was the most godly nation on the earth in the days of Jesus, period. No nation was more godly. They knew about sin. They had the sacrificial system. They knew about the miraculous leadership in their life. They knew they were called by God. They were the most godly people on earth, and they lived in their theocracy by the principles of the Old Testament, interpreted with the Mishnah, etc. That's how they lived. That's how the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, operated. But did you know Jesus who lived the kind of life we're talking about? The Supreme Court somehow, I guess it was postmodernism way back there in the first century, found him guilty. Right? Huh? You know the Bible a little bit? Found him guilty. Supreme Court. We interpreted the law. Well, on top of that, the president would be Pilate, who the commander-in-chief represented Rome. Pilate found no problem with him. He said, this is an innocent man. But Pilate had pressure from Rome and pressure from the Jewish leadership. And Pilate said, well, you know, I hand him over. Pressure. I.e. the president. What about the people? Well, on Sunday, when Jesus came in riding on the donkey on Palm Sunday, man, they waved palm branches. They said, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. This may be the Messiah. Hosanna. That was on Sunday. To show how divided the people were in Israel, on Thursday, they said, crucify him, crucify. Sunday, Hosanna. Thursday, crucify. The division we see of the people represented today by our own house and senate. Divided. Not a perfect parallel. Can't press all these points down. But I think we see it. I think we see it. Speak love. Hmm. Teach truth. Live pure. And ladies and gentlemen, blood, sweat, and tears will begin to battle in our cultural war. And guess what? Jesus told us ever, ever so clearly. John chapter 15, Jesus is speaking. Listen to this. Jesus says, if the world, the culture, hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Huh. If you were of the culture, the culture would love its own. Hmm. Yet because you are not of the culture, countercultural lifestyle, but I chose you out of the culture, therefore the culture hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they, the culture, the world, 
persecuted me, said Jesus, they will also persecute you. Want to sign up for the battle we're in? Get ready. Blood, sweat, tears to be persecuted.